you can open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Just as a follow-up on that chili cook-off announcement, don't feel any pressure that you have to dust off grandma's recipe for that chili. Feel free, like we do every year, to stop by Ted's Montana Grill and get a big pot and then represent it as your own, and maybe you'll win. No, don't do that. And that's not what we do, but I'm sure some of you have done that. But anyway, hey guys, thanks to everyone who came out yesterday for our Theology and Practice Conference with Dr. Scott Swain as he taught on Trinitarian Theology. Um, if you did not have a chance to be there, that will be available on the church website, on the hub, either tonight or tomorrow at forexkalarn.com. Now, that conference was very timely in terms of where we find ourselves in our study of the gospel of Matthew. And it's almost as if we planned it this way, hint, hint, right? Matthew 3 is a dramatic presentation of God in three persons in action. This is not a mere formulation of Trinitarian theology we find in Matthew 3. These are not simply abstract propositional terms that you learn in a systematic theology class, although that's a good thing to do too. What we, hear, what we have here is nothing less than, again, I'll use this word, a dramatic presentation of the interplay of the three persons of the Godhead. And these three persons are united in their glorious unity, but at the same time, we also see an amazing diversity. Now, let me tell you why I think this issue of unity, diversity is super important for the cultural moment that we live in. Because we're in a situation where to affirm, this is culturally speaking, differences, distinctions, roles, responsibilities, to do any of that when it relates to gender, sexuality, men, women, marriage, those, those things are seen as nothing less than a sort of a, for, a cultural form of heresy, right? That will get you excommunicated when you start using that language in the public square. We, we are in a cultural moment where identities are chosen, they're manipulated, they're constructed, they're built, they're imagined, all based on some sort of inward psychological impression or feeling that we have about who we think we ought to be. And not to do that is to be seen as inauthentic, right? This spirit of the age we have to recognize uh, is one that also threatens to infect the church. Listen to this quote by Michael Cleary. For many Christians, authenticity has become dogma. It is sinful to be fake or inauthentic. Authenticity is a moral imperative that must be obeyed even if it leads you to sin. Consequently, emotions replace God's law because what God most wants is for you to be your most authentic self. Carl Truman calls this the triumph of the therapeutic, the triumph of the psychologized self. Now, let me just say this, guys. The, the, the solution to all this, let me tell you where this is not going. The solution to all this is not, we just need to get back to the good old days, Pastor Paul, whenever those were. We just need to cue up the all in the family theme. Remember that, Archie Bunker? Boy, we knew who we were then. Girls were girls and men were men. That, that's, that's not what we're talking about here. Guys, our, our, our identity crisis goes far, far deeper than that. 
See, the, the, the crisis of our identity issues have to really go for healing and truth into the heart and person of God. That we need to come to understand anew and afresh that human differences and diversity, whether, and again, including those of male and female, are not just simply interchangeable constructs, but are instead patterned after the amazing diversity and beauty we see in the Godhead. Now, Matthew 3, let me just say, this is not a, a passage, it's not a sermon about gender and sexuality, but it is a foundational building block. It's a glimpse into the glorious unity and the glorious diversity of the Godhead, where we're going to see all three members of the Trinity unified eternally together, ontologically equal, but also we're going to see an amazing diversity that each member of the Godhead has a unique function when it comes to securing your salvation and my salvation. And we want to grow in deeper appreciation and knowledge of this amazing reality this morning. So we're going to be in Matthew chapter 3, we're going to read verses 13 through 17. If you can, I invite you to stand. It's a short passage, but we're going to read it together, pray, and then dig in. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? But Jesus answered him, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Let's pray. Lord, we ask now that you would take us deeper into your heart, that we would know you better. Lord, not just merely for theological precision, as important as that is, but Lord, that we would be able to worship you, commune with you, and to know you in a deeper way. Lord, we ask these things in your son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may take your seats. I've been told that we are to mark our calendars for May 6, 2023. It's our friends in Britain who have told us to do this. By friends in Britain, I mean Joe Godfrey, our friend in Britain. Something is going to happen there in, that, that has not happened in 70 years. There is going to be a public coronation of someone of the royal family. King Charles is going to be coordinated, uh, to, to be coronated, and and. Joe Godfrey, who many of you know, um, we keep her on staff mainly because of the accent. She is going over just for this event. Okay, now she also, I think, is going to visit her mom, but you get the sense. I hear it's going to be amazing. It's like one of these like century marker sort of things. Now, we have to ask, and I, as an American, I have to ask, why do we need a coronation, right? Why is it necessary? Because after all, Prince Charles is now King Charles, okay? He, he, he's king. 
He's making decisions, or what few decisions a royal actually makes, but he's playing the role, right? Driving around and being seen and meeting with the prime minister, or so says the, the crown that we've been watching. But we have to understand, okay, a coronation is not going to make him king or not king. He is already king, okay? The coronation isn't for him. The coronation is not to bestow authority. The coronation is for the people, the coronation is for the people so that they can look back at a point in time and to mark it, to reference it, to, to, to say, you know what, that, that was the moment when, when, he, when the king was publicly recognized and we draw stability from that, we draw direction from it, it's the place that we, it's sort of the, the, the epicenter that we sort of gravitate back to. When leadership and things are, are dark and troubled, we, we, we can look to this thing and place some sense of certainty in it. And in a lot of ways, if you understand that imperfect analogy, you'll understand what's happening in our text in Matthew chapter 3. What we have here for Oaks is nothing less than the coronation of a king. In fact, it's the coronation of King Jesus. But please understand this. Jesus was already king before this coronation. Jesus is the eternal king of king and the Lord of lords. This coronation is not for him. This coronation is for you and for me and for the people who were witnessing it. This is going to be the point in time where people can point back to to recognize the kingship of Jesus, and we see this drama unfolding on the banks of the Jordan River, where this is such a monumental event. This is so crucial to understanding everything that has come before and that comes after. It's the passage where we see all three members of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, present in this coronation, actively involved in it, and by understanding what they're doing, we'll understand, I think, a greater sense of who God is and I believe his love for us. So, so here's, here's the three things we want to see in the text, okay? And they're all ordered around a different member of the Godhead. Number one, we're going to see the son's assumption. Secondly, the spirit's anointing. And finally, the Father's announcement. Now, it would have been nice if that last point, Father, if that had started with an S as well, but I, no, I'm not even that gifted, okay? So I couldn't figure out another word for the Father. So here we go. The Son's assumption, the Spirit's anointing, the Father's announcement, okay? That's where we're going. Let's look first at the Son's assumption. Look at verse 3. I'm sorry, verse 13. Verse 13 makes it crystal clear that the baptism of Jesus was not a happenstance thing. Jesus did not get swept up into the emotion of the moment. Jesus' friends were not all walking down the aisle. And Jesus said, hmm, I'm wondering what's happening. I think I'll walk down the aisle too and pray a prayer and then afterwards have no idea what I did. Okay, That's, That might be some of your testimonies. I don't know. But listen to what verse 13 says. It says, then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. This is the language that Matthew uses. It denotes this idea that Jesus made a beeline from Nazareth to Judea. It was about 70 miles. And 
for this journey, he had a singular purpose. He was coming there singularly to be baptized, which should signal to us, number one, this is obviously something very important. This is not peripheral. And again, we could have an excursus about why baptism is important and why it's not peripheral, but that's not today's sermon. But today's sermon is why? Why is Jesus coming to be baptized? Because after all, as we saw last week, John is out in the wilderness performing a baptism of what? Repentance. A baptism uh, for the forgiveness of sins. People are coming, they're confessing their sins. They're presenting themselves to God through John. They're being baptized as a symbol of the cleansing that they need from their sin. And our immediate question, the obvious question, is the same one that John the Baptist has, right? He asks it here for us. Listen, look what he says. Why, in essence, why should the Lamb of God, who takes, a, takes away the sin of the world, be baptized? That, that's the obvious question. That's the question for us. Now, John the Baptist, or as we noted last week, JTB. We're going with JTB. JTB and Jesus get into it a little bit here, okay? So, so, so that, that phrase, look back at the text, John, in verse 14, would have prevented there's this idea there in the verb of it's a persistent action. In other words, Jesus is having to insist to John, saying, John, I need you to baptize me. No, no, thank you, Jesus. You don't need to be baptized. No, John, I, I'm, this is my coordination, actually. So, so please, would you go ahead and baptize me? Oh, no, no, Jesus, you need to baptize me. That's the sense of things. They're going back and forth. And would you know it, Jesus wins the argument, as he always does, right? And he says that John... Relented, But now, here's the interesting thing. Why did Jesus do this? Well, Jesus actually himself gives us the answer. Look back at the text. He says, so that we might fulfill all righteousness. Now, there's no shortage of debate about what this means. You can consult the commentaries for it. But I think what I'm about to say, I think, is, is, is in my mind, probably the clearest answer, I think it's as we, particularly as we unfold Matthew, I think we'll look back on this and see that this is certainly the answer. Please understand this. Jesus is not being baptized as a sinner. Jesus is being baptized as a substitute. Jesus is being baptized as a representative He's assuming our place. That's what we mean by the, the son's assumption. Let me kind of unpack that for a minute. Because part of Jesus' mission, part of his incarnation is not simply that he came to die. Now, as evangelicals, we get that part of Jesus' mission, right? Jesus came, the cross, died on the cross, substitute for sins. And absolutely, that is the foundation of the gospel, the gospel is nothing if it is not that. But have you ever thought, if that's all Jesus needed to do, why wouldn't Jesus just die here at the beginning of his ministry? Why, why, why take three years of teaching and preaching and healing? Well, I think the answer to this is that Jesus did not come just to die a death on the cross for us. He came to live a life in our place. He, Jesus came to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. 
You see, Paul makes it clear in his letters that, that Jesus is kind of like a second Adam. See, the first Adam went into the fray for us. He came as our representative. He came as bearing the torch of God's righteousness, and Adam failed miserably. But what we have with Jesus, in a sense, is the second Adam. He has come to do what the first Adam failed to do. We're going to really see this in living color next week when we see the temptation of Jesus. Is Jesus going to fail like Adam? Is he going to fail like Israel in the Old Testament wilderness? And so this is, this is in a sense, Jesus, our captain, carrying the torch for us. He is identifying for us. We sang that song at the beginning of the service, Christ our captain. If you, don't, if you didn't hear it, it was because you weren't in here. Only 10 of you were. Let the hearer hear, okay? You know I just had to throw that in there, okay? So what we have here, the praise team was here, and they're like snickering like well, I was here. Jesus is publicly identify himself with us because, let's be honest, we are the ones who need cleansing. We are the ones who need forgiveness. And can I just say, maybe you're here this morning and you don't consider yourself to be particularly religious, or you're here because your parents made you come, or you're visiting with a friend, or you're here from out of town. But I think it's endemic to the human soul, the human condition, that all of us whether we consider ourselves religious or not, we know something's kind of wrong with us, don't we? we? We know something's just not quite right. Our, our lives don't exactly match what we aspire to in our hearts. Now, sometimes it's hard to get in touch with that because we're super busy, we, we're, we're, we, we live in clutter, we're, we're constantly bombarded with social media and, and noise. We'll do any number of things to cope with that, right? To set it aside, to suppress it, to put it down. But when you're laying in bed at night and you're having trouble going to sleep or you're daydreaming at your desk at your job or in your class, you know deep down something's not quite right. My conscience bothers me. Things aren't working in my life the way I think they're supposed to work. There's something broken. There's something, there, you feel a, and here's the word where the word disease comes from. You feel a dis-ease in your soul. And here, we all recognize, right, when we're brutally honest, we need somebody to make this right. We, we, we need this cleansing. We, we, and we may not call it that, but that's what it is. And here Jesus is saying, I know what you need. I know you can't do this for yourself. I'm here to fulfill all righteousness by standing in as your representative. Now, I think one of the things that's in view here, and I've told you this before, but I think when Matthew wrote his gospel, he clearly had a scroll of Isaiah open right next to him, okay? Because he quotes Isaiah extensively, explicitly, and implicitly. But I think this idea that Jesus says, we need to fulfill all righteousness, so that the righteous requirements of the law, I think this, this really draws from Isaiah 53, 11, the suffering servant. Listen to this. Out of the anguish of his soul, 
he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, that's Jesus, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. You see, it won't do just for anyone to sacrifice themselves for you. No good for a mere human to die for one another in terms of the payment of sins, in terms of the cleansing of the heart, the cleansing of the conscience. No, no, Jesus says, as the holy one, as the perfect one, I'm going to be your servant. And I'm going to take that punishment upon me. I'm going to be accounted righteous. I'm going to bear your iniquities. And I believe this is who Jesus is and who he's being presented as at this coronation. I mean, guys, this goes against everything that we know about a king, right? With a real coronation, there is pomp and circumstance and glory and honor and praise. But here Jesus is on the banks of the Jordan in obscurity. The son of God became man. He was a servant. Jesus did not need a cleansing. You and I needed a coronation, which brings us to our second point. Let's look at this, the Spirit's anointing. So back to the text. And when Jesus was baptized, he immediately went up from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. Now, once more, I think Matthew is drawing, knowing that these were Jewish Christians. They were very familiar with their Old Testament. They would have, I think, immediately associated this scene with what we see in Isaiah 42. Look at that passage. Behold my servant, Isaiah says, whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights, I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the nation. So the, the, the idea here is that the Spirit, the, God's Holy Spirit, is coming down upon Jesus as part of an anointing. Now, that's a big spiritual religious word. What do we mean when we say anointing, right? I think there's some sort of horror flick called the anointing or something or something else. Anyway, it's one of those things. It's, it, what, what we talk about when we talk about anointing is this idea of God setting apart someone. God conferring favor. God conferring status. And one of the things that we see in the Bible is that whenever there is an anointing from God, whether it's through a prophet or a person or someone else, there's always a physical sign that accompanies it. And, and, and part of that is that it's part of God's confirmation to say, look here, I, I'm, I'm giving a visible demonstration of an inward reality. I'm confirming it by this outward sign. And so what, is the, what are the outward signs here? Well, first of all, it says that heaven was opened. And again, we don't know exactly what that means. We don't know if there was a bright flashing light. We do know there's lots of examples of the heavens being opened in the Bible. And when heavens are open, let me just say this, bizarre things happen, okay? So, so the heavens are open for John, and it's like all these beasts start coming out. And he's like, thank you very much. We'll just shut that one up right now. 
Ezekiel, the heavens were open for Ezekiel, we still don't know what Ezekiel saw. Wheels spinning. I mean, it's just like, what, what, what in the world is going on? The whole, the whole idea is that there's this overwhelming sense of God's presence. And here, we see that this presence is being, is symbolized physically, okay, by this rushing wind and by this dove that sets itself on Christ. Now, again, no small amount of discussion about what, what this is. First of all, let, let's, just, let's be clear about something. All the gospel writers make it really clear, this is a physical dove. Whether the Spirit is in the dove, the Holy Spirit, or whether the Spirit accompanies the dove, I don't think that's really the main point here. The, the main point is that there would have been a physical sign that something unique, something astounding has happened. Now, why a dove? Now, again, there's, there's debate about this. There, there's a couple of thoughts on this. One, maybe it's a dove because Genesis 8. So when there was a new beginning, what bird did Noah send forth from the ark? You get one guess, okay? It's a dove. And there's a sense of, well, well Jesus is inaugurating this new beginning. That, that's possible. But I think maybe more likely is this idea that if you were an Old Testament Jew and you weren't a part of the upper class, you were not a part of the gilded elites, and you had to bring your offering, you did not bring your bull, right? You couldn't afford one of those. You brought your what? You brought your dove. And there is this sense, I think, from the very beginning, Jesus knows he is on a mission as a king to die. And so this, this accompaniment of these signs would have, would, would have made it very clear to all those who were witnessing him, this is someone unique. This is someone who some sort of, some sort of divine status is being bestowed upon him. It would have been a confirmation that God is really working and speaking in Actually, there's a New Testament passage where we see this very same thing happening, Acts 2. Let me read it for us. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven, sound familiar? A sound like a mighty rushing wind, same thing. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. But now instead of doves, what do we get? Fire, okay? And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them uttering. Again, what would all of this have communicated to them? Something divine, something supernatural. Remember, it wasn't for Jesus' sake, as far as these signs, he was already king. It was for the people who were watching and observing. Now, I do think there's a, a second thing that's going on when it talks about the Holy Spirit descending upon Jesus. And this gets to the heart of the nature of Jesus's mission. He had to fulfill all righteousness. He had to be obedient. He had to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. Have you ever asked yourself, how was he able to do that? Now, some might say, well, well Pastor Paul, he, he's God, of course. But you know, as, his, as to his divine nature, absolutely. But you know, and this is from the seminar yesterday, Jesus was also not just 100% God. He was 100% man. 
And how was it that Jesus was able to persevere, to be faithful, to be obedient? I would submit to you, it was through the power of the Holy Spirit. Just a couple, a couple of verses. And by the way, who is the first divine reality that shows up in the womb of Mary? Matthew says, the Holy Spirit. Listen to what Luke 4 says. And Jesus, full of the Spirit, Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit to Galilee. And a report about him went out through all the surrounding country, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified by all. Listen to Acts 10. And I think Acts 10 here is referring to John's baptism. Listen to this. You, you, you yourselves know what happened throughout all Judea. Beginning from Galilee, after the baptism that John proclaimed, how God anointed, that's where we get that word, Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Spirit and with power. And he went about doing good and healing all who were oppressed by the devil, for God was with him. Because isn't it interesting that every time we, we, we see Jesus kind of in one of three venues in the Gospels. He's either with the crowds, he's with his disciples, or he's with his father. How many times do we read Jesus, as was it his custom, got up early before the, cloud, before the sun even rose to get alone to pray? Jesus, after the miraculous feeding of the 5,000, got alone to pray. What, what, what is happening there? What, 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 what can we learn from this as believers? Guys, Jesus was utterly dependent upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And as such, he expressed, and I'm speaking in human terms, so don't go too far with this. He expressed that need, if I can use that word, through his communion with the Father in prayer by the power of the Spirit. Because one of the things that we have to recognize, again, living in our cultural moment in the busyness and the chaotic noise of our lives, is that our dependence upon God, our dependence upon Jesus it is very to say, will be measured accurately in one-to-one -one terms with our prayer life. If we believe that truly, just as Jesus, we can do nothing apart from God. We can do nothing apart from the life-giving work of the Savior. We can do nothing without the empowering witness of the Holy Spirit. If that has drilled itself down into our bones, then our prayer lives will reflect it. See, sometimes, let's be honest, prayer just seems so inefficient. Or maybe I'm just projecting onto you, right? My own thoughts. I've got so much to do. And if I sit here and read my Bible and pray right now, I'm not doing X, Y, and Z. And you know what? That's right. I, I am being inefficient to the things I think I need to do. Do you hear that? But God says, man does not live by bread alone. Walk in the power of the Spirit. Do not quench the Spirit. Be filled with the Spirit, just like that young baby right there, which who I love so much, right? 
your good granddad, Keith. <laughs> Guys, you realize, l- l- listen to the astounding, this astounding declaration in Romans 8 about the Spirit. If the Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his Spirit who dwells in you. Think about that. The spirit that dwells, dwelled in Jesus is the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead. That's the same spirit that gave you life. It's the same spirit that will carry you, strengthen you, persevere in you, and to the end of the age will be glorified in you. How much more if it's for the sake of Jesus, how much more do we need the empowering leading of God's Holy Spirit in our lives? And this anointing is not something that just Jesus needed for his empowerment. This is needed for us. Last point, and we're, we're done. There's the Son, there's the Spirit, but let's not forget the Father. The Father has a very important announcement. Look back at the text. And behold, a voice from heaven said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. One thing we need to understand biblically is that God never reveals signs and wonders just for the sake of signs and wonders. He never reveals sign and wonders for entertainment purposes. The signs and wonders of God are always accompanied by the words of God. See, words don't serve the signs, okay? Signs serve the word. So look, take any place in Scripture. Let me just give you a couple examples. Pharaoh, spectacular signs in Egypt, the ten plagues. But what was the function of the signs? The function of the signs was to show that God was great so that when Moses went to Pharaoh proclaiming God's word, what did Moses say? Let my people go. Think about Elijah. He calls all of Israel up to Mount Carmel and he calls fire down from heaven. And this wasn't for entertainment purposes. This wasn't to show Israel all his cool and nifty tricks as a prophet. This was in order to show Israel to open their hearts to this idea that only God is the true God. The signs were meant to be, the signs served as the venue by which the word was proclaimed. That's the same thing that we have here. See, there could have been an anointing. It could have been the son being baptized. It could have been all signs and wonders and then everybody go about their business. But if everybody was to go about their business, they would have taken it upon themselves to interpret the signs. They would have interpreted, they, they would have taken it upon themselves to say, well, you know, when I saw this, this is what happened. When I saw that, this is what happened. Like a bunch of different eyewitnesses. God says, I want to make this crystal clear what's happening in this anointing. And this is when God says, pointing to the son, follow him. Listen to him. 
This is my son with whom I am well pleased. Maybe this helps us understand a little bit better, and we'll see this in Matthew 2, where Jesus often rebukes the people for asking for a sign. What does he tell the religious leaders? A wicked and adulterous nation asks for a sign. It's not because Jesus is anti-sign. It's just that Jesus was not a traveling magician. He's not a magic man. He's not a soothsayer. Put this into to, to modern day terms. He's not just simply a moral example for us. He doesn't just ride to the rescue and bail us out of things without revealing to us who he truly is. And the way that that happens is through the word. In other words, don't just be impressed with this Jesus by the signs you see. Follow this Jesus. Obey this Jesus. Listen to this Jesus. Lots of application points we could delve into. Let me just mention a couple quickly. Because we are a culture a spiritual but not religious culture that loves signs. We love to look for a sign. We, we, we love to say, God told me. We love to say things like, I don't believe in coincidences, right? Now, all of those things have just enough truth to be really spiritually lethal. I've heard so many people say, Pastor Paul, God is leading me, I know it, to leave my wife, to abandon my kids, to abandon my home, to abandon my responsibilities, all in the pursuit of what the quote I just said before, trying to live for our authentic self and giving weight to feelings and emotions. When ultimately, what did Jesus say? I'll give you a sign. I'm the sign. I'm going to rise from the grave. I'm... I'm I'm, I'm the word of God. Because this is so important because in an age that loves signs, what does it say? Satan can imitate an angel of light. Because it's simply a say, it doesn't mean that God doesn't work providentially. It doesn't mean that God doesn't speak to us, lead us. But be super careful to always Take what you believe God is leading you to and make sure it is affirmed and validated by the word of God. If it is not, that is not God's voice you hear. Validated, measured by the word. Because I want to wrap this up this morning by doing two things. I want to point you quickly to just the bottom of this passage in terms of its deepest roots theologically. And I, and I want to show you, secondly, how I think this applies to you right here, right now, today, with whatever you're going through. Theologians have a term that they call the covenant of redemption. Now, the Bible is full of covenants. God, the covenant God made with Abraham, the covenant God made with Moses, with Abraham, the new covenant. The covenant of redemption is not about the covenant God makes with man. The covenant of redemption is about the covenant that God makes with himself. That before the foundation of the world, before you and I were on the scene, God had an eternal plan 
between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to save you through his Son. That, that this plan was, God was perfectly aligned. He was perfectly unified in his three persons. There was no disagreement. There was no begrudging obedience. There was 100% joyful, mutual submission and unity within the Godhead for how God would go about saving his people. It's a beautiful thing, and we see it right in this text, don't we? When God says, I love my son, listen to him, obey him, I'm well pleased with him, there is this idea that, that the father in his Trinitarian reality is sending the son. And that the son, just as all sons, wants to be obedient to his father. Again, not begrudgingly, but in full submission and in full unity and love. And they are, they are like hand in glove. And so the, so the son goes to accomplish the mission for which the father has sent him. And it's the Holy Spirit who's empowering Jesus in that mission. Ultimately raising him from the dead. And sealing him in his ministry as the God-man. Guys, it's, an, it's a glorious thing. And I, and I simply want to say this. There might be some of you at this point in your spiritual life, you might feel very alone, very troubled, very discouraged, very abandoned. And I think sometimes we need to be reminded, not sometimes, we always need to be reminded that your perseverance, your, your faithfulness is ultimately not dependent... Nothing can interrupt that. Your, your sin, someone else's sin, suffering, trials in this life, that is because for those who are in Christ, God has made an eternal covenant of redemption. He is going to save you. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ that doesn't preclude all the other warnings and things that we say the scripture says. But if we say, try to say everything all at once, we'll never say anything. And what we see in this text is that the Godhead perfectly unified accomplishing salvation for you. And that because of that, we know that he will never leave us or forsake us. We know that he will complete the work that he has begun. And that he will one day glorify you according to his grace and good pleasure. Do you know that, Jesus? Are you trusting in that, Jesus? There is no other hope in life and death. There is no other hope for cleansing. There is no other hope for meaning in a, in a guilty conscience. There, there, there's nothing apart from the life we receive in Jesus. So I'm going to ask you just to spend a moment or two reflecting on this message, preparing your hearts to come to the table as our leaders come forward to serve our elements.